Hello and welcome to A View from the Bench, a podcast about my experiences and perceptions in the courtroom dealing with the trial of major cases over a legal career spanning almost five decades. I'm your host, Albert McKaig, and today we will be talking about a murder case I handled as a defense attorney. During the trial, the facts came out that a man shot his girlfriend and then sat there and watched her die. Some of the details are a bit graphic, so this is a warning to check your audience before you listen. Before we get started, though, and because I still sit as a senior state district judge, I have to do the disclosure routine. Apologies for that, but it's a necessary obstacle to overcome. In these episodes, I will not be giving a legal opinion on the law, but merely my impression of how certain laws fit certain fact situations. Also, nothing said in this podcast is intended to show or predict how I will rule on either current or future cases. The Judicial Code of Ethics prohibits my commenting on cases pending in my court or criticizing the actions of other trial judges. All cases that I discuss have been disposed of and I no longer have any jurisdiction or authority over those cases. With those disclosures out of the way, let's talk about a view from the bench. This is a case I handled as a lawyer. As such, nothing that I cover here was part of a private conversation I had with my client. The rules of professional conduct would not allow me to discuss those conversations even after all this time. All of the details and comments that I will cover came out during the trial of the case and through a statement given by my client to the police, and that statement was admitted into evidence during the trial. This took place almost 30 years ago, but due to the nature of the case, I've retained a fairly clear memory of a lot of the details of the case. A man and a woman were living together out on the west side of Houston. She was a bit older than he was at the time, and she had two young adult children. He didn't have any children and was somewhere around 30 years old. The relationship wasn't terrible, and there were no reports of actual physical abuse, but they did have arguments from time to time. Most of the arguments had to do with whether one of them was sleeping around on the other or whether or not the man was working as he should have been and making enough money to support the couple. At trial, there was no actual evidence that there was any physical abuse during the relationship, but that was in the police reports. One day, the couple got into another argument, but eventually they appeared to make up. Part of the making up was that the couple retired to the bedroom for a round of sex. Following the sex, the woman went into the bathroom to take a bath. The man came in and sat down on the commode to talk. Well, after a couple of minutes, he went out to the attached garage and got his old single-shot twenty-two rifle and a couple of bullets. It was a beat-up old gun once we saw it. At any rate, he went into the bathroom, talked to the woman briefly, and then shot her in the side of the body. It wasn't a fatal shot, so he reloaded and shot her again. The woman was alert enough to know that she was dying, and the man sat there on the commode, smoked a cigarette, and literally watched her die. After a bit, the man got up, got dressed, and started preparing to dispose of the woman's body. The man then backed his car into the garage and waited until dark. Meanwhile, inside the house, he took the woman's body out of the bathtub, dried her off. He took a sheet of plastic and placed it on the bed, placing her on the plastic sheet. He took the top sheet from the bed, wrapped that around her, and then rolled up the entire bundle and taped it closed. After it was well dark, the man loaded the woman's body into the car trunk and started driving. He ended up out on Interstate 10, headed west. 
Eventually, the man came to the Brazos River where there was a turnaround road that ran under the bridge. He drove down under the highway bridge and dumped the body on the ground, not in the river. He then drove back to the house and went to bed. A couple of days later, a man and his adult son went under the bridge to do a little river fishing. Well, they found the body, recognized it for what it was, despite the plastic in the sheet, and called the police. An investigation ensued, but as the woman was nude and had no identification on her, she was listed as a Jane Doe unidentified female. Well, fire ants had gotten to the body, so it was covered with bites, but she was fully recognizable as a slim, White female, approximately 40 years of age, it gave her proximate weight and height, and with blonde hair. The body was then sent to the Harris County Medical Examiner's Office, and an autopsy was performed to determine the exact cause of death and an approximate time of death. Meanwhile, the woman's adult son had contacted the man and asked where his mother was. He wanted to talk to her. Well, the man gave him some story about her being angry and leaving the day before. That could have been typical, so the young man accepted the story. The next day, however, with no word from his mother, the man started asking more questions of the man and didn't get the answers he thought he should. Now, this was before the widespread use of cell phones, and there wasn't an option back then for him to try to call her or to use a ping to locate the phone. Well, so the young man filed a missing persons report with the police, giving a full description of his mother, as you would expect. Within a couple of days, the Jane Doe report and the missing person report were seen and the identity of the woman was tentatively established. The body was still at the medical examiner's office, so the son went there and positively identified his mother. A body that had been attacked by fire ants, left in the open for a couple of days, and then had an autopsy performed on it is not a pleasant thing to see, especially for a person's child. All of those photographs came out during the trial of the case. They're very graphic. An autopsy had established the cause of death, which was a gunshot, the approximate time of death, and the details about the condition of the body, the sheet, and the plastic covering. All of those things were recovered by the police. The bullets that killed the woman were also recovered from a body and identified as being fired from a twenty-two caliber weapon, either a rifle or a handgun. That couldn't be determined. With the identity established, the police went to the couple's home and interviewed the man and found that his stories were not matching with what he had told the son. The police had enough information by that time that they obtained a search warrant for the house, looking for bedding that matched the sheet in which the woman was wrapped, as well as any sort of twenty-two caliber firearm or ammunition. The search, in fact, turned up the bottom fitted sheet and pillowcases that matched the top sheet in which the woman was wrapped. It had been through the washing machine, but the floral pattern of the sheet and pillowcases was a direct match. The police also found the single-shot twenty-two rifle out in the garage, which still had a spent shell casing in the chamber. Further searching identified the presence of trace amounts of blood in the bathroom using an agent called luminol. That's a liquid agent that's put on the blood and then an infrared or a black light is put over that and you'll see the traces of blood. Well, even trace amounts of blood can be seen through that process. With the body, the sheet, the weapon, and the blood, the man was arrested for murder. He voluntarily gave a statement to the police relating much of what I've described about the argument, the sex, the bathtub, the shooting, and watching her die. 
He described how he disposed of the body and what he did afterward. As a footnote here, the police ran a routine criminal history on the man and discovered that he had not only a small misdemeanor criminal record, but that he had killed a man in self-defense several years before he killed this woman. An investigation was done on that older incident, and that older case was closed as a matter of self-defense. Well, soon after the man's arrest, this murder case was taken to the grand jury and the man was indicted for first-degree murder, an offense with a punishment range of up to life in prison. Well, I was appointed to represent the man as he claimed to be indigent as he didn't have a job. Well, I began working up all that we would need to do in order to provide a good defense of the case. Well, as you can imagine, with all the evidence against the man, along with his confession, I didn't have a lot to work with, but I did have my job to do in protecting the man's constitutional rights and in presenting a case in the light most favorable to my client. Well, if you're wondering how an attorney can defend a person in this situation, I encourage you to listen to episode 307 in this series of A View from the Bench. It's entitled, A Trial of a Case and How It Works. In that episode, I discussed the role of a defense attorney. By the time I was assigned to this case, I had already had a fairly good reputation as a trial attorney. I can't say that I won every case, but I usually did fairly well. I had tried many cases while I was a felony prosecutor and had been trying several high-level criminal cases each year as a defense attorney. I can honestly say that I was fairly experienced by the time I was handling this case. As a result, the state offered my client a plea bargain of only 16 years in prison, and due to the nature of the charges, he would have to do at least half of any sentence he received before being eligible for parole. Well, without going into any of our discussions, the man refused the offer and wanted to take the case to a jury trial. He thought he could do better than the 16-year offer. That is absolutely a criminal defendant's right, so that's what we did. At trial, literally everything that I've discussed here came out. After a three-day trial, it didn't take the jury long to come back with a verdict of guilty and convict the man of first-degree murder. We then set about the sentencing portion of the trial. Again, that is described in episode 307. After testimony from the woman's children and the background of the defendant came out, the jury sentenced the man to 40 years in prison. As sentence was being pronounced by the judge, the man turned to me and in a clearly audible voice in the courtroom asked me this, Do you think my turning down the 16 years was an error in judgment? Well, I could only look at him and say, you think? You know, you just can't make this stuff up. The man appealed the case, and another attorney was appointed to handle that. But the conviction was affirmed at the appellate court level, and it was not taken to the highest court in Texas, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. The man was sent to prison to do his time. I don't know what happened to him after that, and really, I guess I don't want to know. By now, he's either completed his sentence and is out of prison, or something may have happened to him. I just don't know. At any rate, that was a memorable case, and most felony murder cases are. Be sure to share this episode with your friends and follow me on your favorite podcast platform. You may want to take a look at my other two podcast series as well. Praying with Passion is a series of 18 podcasts designed for your life group, home church, or Sunday school class, and follows along with the book I wrote by the same title a few years ago. You can find it on my website, prayingwithpassion.com. 
The other series is Honor and Courage, about the renewal and reawakening of American excellence. I think you will appreciate both of them. Well, I'll see you next time, right here. Until then, may God bless you and keep you. May His face shine upon you and give you peace.